Today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Saiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. It might sound like a weird question, but if I was to say to you, how many guys called Jesus are there in the Bible? If you ask me, probably my first thought would be one. But I thought about it. Yeah, I can think of at least four and two are in the New Testament, maybe three. Of course, there's the Jesus we all know and love and worship. But there are many more Jesus-I, Jesuses in the Bible. For example, at Jesus' trial, there's another man called Jesus. His name, more commonly known, is Barabbas or Bar-Abbas. This is Jesus, Bar, son of the fathers, Abbas. So there's a man called Jesus, son of the fathers. Now, the name Jesus is a version, or it's the same name essentially, as Joshua. We all know famous Joshua, apprentice to Moses. Joshua, how is he often referred to? Joshua, son of Nun. 
In Luke 3, which we've just heard, if we continued, we'd see a genealogy. One of Jesus' ancestors is Joshua, or Jesus, son of Eliezer. You know, to actually know the Jesus we want to know and worship, to truly identify Jesus, you're going to need to know something about his relationships. To know that he is Jesus, the son of Joseph. Luke wants us to understand that he's Jesus, the son of Joseph. Luke wants us to understand that he's Jesus, the relative and the person referred to by John the Baptist. We'll understand who Jesus is by seeing him in relation to John, seeing him in relation to Joseph, and of course, seeing him in relation to God. Luke contends, and I'll contend this morning, that you can't know Jesus outside of his, his relationships. Let me go a step further. Jesus can't know Jesus outside of his relationships. God can't know God outside of his relationships. And because of that, you and I can't know God outside of his relationships. Because we're created in God's image, you can't know you outside of his relationships. That's a fair bit to stomach so early in the talk. Today we begin in a new series called The Divine Dance. And it's a series to help us contemplate, understand and think about God who has revealed himself as what we call Trinity. A God of relationships. One God in three persons. And we're going to spend the next four weeks understanding this God who exists in this perfect relationship and even seeing how this relationship affects our own relationships. Today, as we begin in this series, The Divine Dance, our talk is called River Dance because Luke has taken us to the Jordan River and this is a unique picture of God where we will see and observe all three persons of the Trinity at once. Now the doctrine of the Trinity, this idea of one God and three persons, it's both conventional and it's controversial. You may not know, but this was an enormous battle for about the first 400 years of the Christian church, like to the point where councils like the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople, there was like riots going on as people battled as to whether God was triune, was he three persons, all eternal, or was he, what was going on? And they battled and it was a big deal. But through that process and that wrestling with scripture, this became orthodoxy or the, the convention of Christian belief. In fact, the Trinity is a mark of Christian orthodoxy, of biblical faith. Now, we don't throw words like heresy around casually, but it's important to recognize that the doctrine of the Trinity is both controversial and conventional. It is what Christians believe. And so at this point, we recognize that we, we don't seek to push away, but we must acknowledge the heresy of some who may claim the name Christian and count them outside of our fellowship. And so Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Christadelphians, 
people like T.D. Jakes and the One Pentecostalism movement, not to be confused with garden variety Pentecostalism. These are people who indeed are enthusiastic for Jesus, but reject the doctrine as we know it of the Trinity. And this is heresy. They're outside of Christian fellowship. This also helps us understand that as Christians, as monotheists, one who believe there is one God, we're not the same as Islam. We're not the same as Judaism. One of the things that people will often say is, look, isn't this all the same God with different names? No, that's an insult. That's a trivialization to Judaism. It's a trivialization to Islam and it's a tri- trivialization to Christianity. We are all monotheistic. We believe there is one God. But Christianity is the only, the only faith that believes that God is one God in three persons. And so our God is not the same as the God who Jews believe in and the God who Muslims believe in. And then there are the polytheistic faiths, those who believe in a multitude of gods. But again, we're not the same. We don't believe in the same God as, say, the Hindus, who believe in many gods. Christians Biblical Christians believe in one God, a God who is like no other, for he is the one God who is in three persons. He is Trinity. He is triune. Now you might go, whoa, where does all this come from? This is actually the first point of belief of our church. Let me share this with you. Not a place we go regularly, but the very first point of belief of our church, Article 1, of the 39 articles of religion of the Anglican Church says this, there is one living and true God, everlasting. And in his unity, in his oneness, in his Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's important for us to pause and understand that this is the crowning doctrine, the crowning belief of the church of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we say, okay, one God, three persons. This sounds quite complicated. How am I going to get my head around it? Well, over many, many years, we've tried, and I'd be lying if I said it was simple. That's why we're going to put some work into it over the next four weeks. One of the ways people have tried to understand the Trinity, the God who is one God in three persons, is to think about him as a substance. This is something we're quite familiar with. This is a tradition of Western orthodoxy. You might have heard some of the illustrations. You can kind of think of God like uh, water, like ice, and like steam. Or you can kind of think of God as Trinity, like an egg that has its, it has its yolk and its white and its shell, all egg, three parts. And these illustrations have helpful sides to them for understanding God and some limitations as well. One of the other ways we've tried to understand God together is through our creed. You know, we say this in the Nicene Creed, that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. We are trying to proclaim at that point that God the Son is of the very same substance of, as God the Father. And God the Holy Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son. So they're all of one substance, one uh, God essence in three persons. But there's another helpful way that we're going to encourage us to explore over the next few weeks. And this sort of finds its origins in 
Eastern Orthodoxy. This is to understand the triune God in the context of his relationships. And it's in the context of his relationships that I suspect the so what of the doctrine of the Trinity lands for us. Because I would understand that, that many of us might say, why do I have to understand this complicated stuff? I'm no theologian. Here's the so what. The so what is that is if we will take the time to understand God in his relationships, we may just find, in fact, we will find the perfect model for us who are made in his image to understand us in our relationships. Let me say that again. If we'll invest the time to understand the very first relationship, that is God, the triune God in his relationship, we will begin to understand who we are to be in our relationships. Relationship with ourself, relationship with God, and relationship with one another. So let's have a go at it. Well, as people tried to understand God in Eastern Orthodoxy in terms of his relationship, they came up with a name. And I promise this is the last really hard thing to think about today. The name that the Greeks gave this understanding of God is perichoresis. And that sounds like a mouthful, but when you break it up, it actually will become quite familiar. It's a compound word, peri and caresses. Peri is where we get words like perimeter, you know, around the circle to be circular or round. And caresses, that's where we get words like choreography, dancing. So what is perichoresis about? That's about a round dance. They wanted to understand the God who is a perfect relationship and they explained this in context of, well, something that might be quite familiar to many different cultures, a round dance. Jews have done it for years, you know, that, that sort of thing. And the Greeks came up with the title. And ladies, who among you did not at some stage gather at the glass house in Wollongong, handbags in the middle, stand in a circle and dance? Well, God, like many human cultures, also dances in the round. I want you to have a look at this video that might just help build a bit more of a sensible context of what the perichoresis might look like. Now look at those dancers. Elegant and wonderful, yes. But the thing I want you to notice about these dancers in this perichoretic, this, this perichoretic dance, this round dance, you see how the dancers are unified. The dancers are unified, yet they're not confused. The dancers are distinct, yet they're not separated. One dance, but you can make out the different dances. You can make out the different dances, but they're united as one. And look at how the dance works. Look at how one dancer gives motion and movement to the other dancer. And so the next dancer receives motion and movement from the dancer alongside. And they go round and round. Their shape, their pattern, their performance is one together. And this was the attempt, and this is going to be our attempt, to understand how the relationships of God, much like the relationship of the dancers, gives shape and pattern and oneness and unity and very identity to God and the three persons of the Godhead. 
And so today, let me take you to the river dance. Let me take you to Luke 3, the, where there is actually a wonderful and rare picture of the perichoretic unity of the Trinity, of the divine dance taking place, of God showing himself one and in three persons. What do we see in Luke 3? Well, look at verse 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened. In verse 22, we see a man called Jesus. And Jesus is distinct. Jesus is, in the, Jesus is in the river. Jesus is clearly not the voice speaking from heaven. Jesus is clearly not a dove descending. Jesus is not John the Baptist. Jesus is not the people. Jesus is distinct. He is the man standing in the Jordan River being baptized. But there's more that we can learn about this Jesus. He's distinct, but Jesus is also God. John the Baptist has come, and as Luke has told John's story, it's very clear that John is a prophet, a prophet of God. And what do the prophets of God point to? They point to God and God's word. And John, as admired as he was, says, The one coming after me is much greater than me. Note his language when he speaks of Jesus. He actually says, The one coming after me is greater than me. How does he describe him as greater? Well, in language that might have become quite common to us, he speaks of how he is unworthy to stoop down and undo the straps of Jesus' sandals. Now, sometimes in uh, colloquial Australian language, we might say, oh, this guy's not another man's bootstraps. But maybe go to another culture. Do you remember when uh, God said to Abraham, take off your shoes where you're sorry, God said to Moses, take off your shoes where you're standing is holy ground. And Moses took off his shoes. Here there's almost a reversal of that where Jesus' feet are so holy that John says, gee, I couldn't even approach his sandals and take those off for those are the holy feet of God. Not only does John say Jesus is greater than me, in verse 4, he points to him as the Lord. What does John say? He says, prepare the way for the Lord, verse 4. John wants everyone to understand that it is the Lord who is coming. In verse 17, John says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather up the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John is using the language of eschatological judgment. This is end time judgment. This is the language only suitable for God himself. And John says the one coming does God's judgment work. And finally in verse 16, again pointing to the majesty of Jesus, John says, look, I'll baptize you with water. That's my prophetic role. But he will do something that only God has done for certain people in the past. He will overwhelm, drown, dip you, immerse you in the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you in the Spirit. This is something that God who sends his Holy Spirit does. Jesus is the one who will baptize people 
in God's own Holy Spirit. What John is making clear to us, what Luke is making clear to us, is that Jesus is distinct, that Jesus is also God. As the river dance continues in verse 22, we're also alerted to another person of the Trinity. Verse 22, Luke says, And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit is distinct. He descends in the form as a dove. He is not the voice from heaven. He is not the man in the river. He is a different person to the man in the river or the voice from heaven. But we'll also see that the Holy Spirit is God. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is God? Well, his name is something of a giveaway. For we will read the scriptures and see there are many spirits. But this spirit is the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of the Holy One. He is the Holy One's Spirit. He is the breath, the Spirit of the Holy One. He is God. Where is He from? He's from heaven. That's a good indication. And He is the one who will lead Jesus, who we've already established is God, and He's the one who leads Jesus. So clearly He's more than just some other guy. The Holy Spirit is God. And as we continue to verse 23... There is a voice from heaven. And the voice from heaven is distinct. The voice from heaven is speaking from heaven. The voice from heaven is not the descending dove. The voice from heaven is not the man in the river. The voice from heaven is God. How do we know? Well, again, he's from heaven. Uh, He is the one who declares the man in the river to be his son. This is language for the Messiah. As we understand from previous parts of Scripture, it is God. Psalm 2 is a good place to go. It is God who anoints the Messiah. The Messiah, the Son of God, is the one of God's choosing, God's Holy One. So this voice from heaven is the Messiah maker, and the Messiah maker is God. But who is this God? Who is this voice from heaven? And here's where we're going to see just how core relationships are to understanding who God is. Relationships are core to understanding God's being, God's identity, and indeed God's work. The voice from heaven is God the parents. Well, how do we know that? Because he declares the God in the river to be his son. Do you see how this works? The only way for God to be God the parent, who later Jesus will teach us, he's not just the parent, he's God the Father. The only way for God the Father to be Father is through relationship with God the Son. You can't be a father without a child. And the only way for God the Son to be God the Son is if there is a God the parent. And the only way for God the Holy Spirit to be God the Holy Spirit is to be the Spirit of the Holy One, the Holy Messiah, the Holy God the Father. And so each person of the Trinity finds their very identity through the relationships they participate in together. The voice from heaven we learn is God the parents, God the Father. Now note, he's not God the man, 
He's God the Father. Man is a category we use to order human species. So it's appropriate of Jesus. But the God who speaks from heaven is God the Father. Jesus is a man. The voice is a father. He's certainly God the Father. So again, I feel we might have to say, so what? So what? That, 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 that's a whole lot of stuff to take in. Will you see with me that God knows himself and God identifies and God introduces himself to us in the context of his relationships? Father, Son, and Spirit of the Holy One. Now just imagine for a moment the one God standing in front of the mirror. Imagine the God in the mirror. What happens when these three persons we've seen stand in the mirror? When, when the voice from heaven stands in the mirror and says, Who am I? He responds, I am the Father of God the Son. I'm God the Father. And when the man in the river stands in the mirror and asks, Who am I? He declares, I'm the Son, the Son of God the Father. And when the Holy Spirit asks himself, Who am I? His answer is, I am the one Spirit. And Spirit is the same word as breath. I'm the one Spirit or breath of God the Father and God the Son. Will you see with me this morning? that every person of the Trinity is interdependent with one another for their identity. God can only be who he is and know who he is and be known as who he is in the context of his relationships. The three persons of the Trinity depend on one another for that identification. The oneness of God comes through their unity and in the river there is a unified and a divine dance of the one god the father speaks the spirit anoints the son is anointed and sent in the mission of the one triune god who saves Next week, as we explore the Trinity further, we're going to think about this God and how a triune God creates and why he creates. We're going to think about the triune God who redeems and what comes from being redeemed by a triune God. This is a relational God in whose image we were created. And when you stop to think about that, there's a great relief and there's a great challenge to us as a people who have become deeply invested in individualism and independence. If God and the three persons of the Trinity depend on one another to understand themselves and their identity, if the one God depends upon his trying relationships to understand and know himself and to be and shows himself to be in that way, what does that mean for me and for you as we think about ourselves? 
maybe in your life group or with your friends, you want to discuss some of these different things as you think about how the Trinity affects who we are. You know, that concept of finding myself. Sometimes I just need to get away and look within myself to find who I really am. Well, maybe that's one of the places I look, but maybe we find ourselves in the context of our togetherness. Maybe finding my true identity is not just about looking in, but looking around and considering what has God said of me? How's my relationship with him work? How does my relationship with others work? Who is my family or who is not my family? Where do I come from? How will we think about those prized concepts like the self-made person? I've contended to myth. Indeed, there are many who have uh, worked really well, really hard, really smart and made something of every opportunity. But who among us can say, yes, I chose to be born to healthy parents as a healthy baby in a country like Australia and not an AIDS-infected mother in Ethiopia? The relationships we participate in will surely determine something of who I am and what I make of myself. What about the concept that uh, we wrestle with in society today of how do I identify? Does my job declare who I am? Do I really as an individual have the authority or the right or even the power to adjust, shape or change my gender? Or is that something that uh, is given to me by God and that I learn and contribute to and find out what it means to exercise that under him. What about as we think about being parents? How often have we all said, oh, I'm raising my little one to be independent. Do we really want to raise children to be independent under a God who is interdependent? How do we think about surviving a COVID season? Why are we sometimes limited to put our hand up and ask for help? Why do we think there is strength in making it on my own? Maybe reflecting on the God who is triune might influence our conversations there. And perhaps as I reflect on my own worth as a human, is it always about what's on my scoreboard? Or does my worth come maybe part of the family I'm in, the team I'm in, the society I belong to? Do we own it together? These are all questions that I will encourage you to think about, to reflect upon. When you measure what is it to be a human created in the image of a triune God, this is an enormous pressure and an enormous distortion, I would contend, when we think this is something done all by ourselves. And I'd say it's somewhat relieved when we know and are known by a God, the God of the divine dance, who understands who he is, who reveals who he is, who is known and makes himself known within the context of his perfect relationships. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the model you have given us and we pray that in our human finiteness you might give us wisdom to understand you as God in triune perfect relationship.
Father God, I pray, even for some of the, the little topics I've raised this morning, that there might be opportunity for us to reflect upon you in your perfect relationship and ask ourselves, how does that affect the way we go and think about ourselves and our relationships, our identity and how we know ourselves? Oh, Father God, in all the, in all the mess of the things I've raised, I pray that your spirit might continue to point us to Jesus and that knowing him, we might have a sound understanding of you and your triune perfection. Father God, we ask that you would lead us over these next three weeks that we might continue to see you as the triune creator and how that shapes all that we are and all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.